wrote the Revelation, right? So I'd want him to read all my sermons on the Revelation and tell me where I went south. But also, you know, just uh, his intimacy with Christ and his desire. One of the things you see in First John is this real desire for, for the love we should have for, for one another. But there's something else. Matter of fact, what we're going to see this morning is in the opening portion of this epistle, he tells us why, why it's written, which I think is really valuable for somebody to go tell you in advance, this is why I'm writing you this letter, and we'll see this in these opening four verses. So 1 John 1, 1 through 4, hear now the word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have even handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, it truly is my prayer, my prayer for myself, for my family, for our church, for all who would hear this message, that we would begin to understand what it means to experience the fullness of joy. So we do pray, Father, that whatever has to happen in our hearts and our minds for this to be achieved, that that would be achieved, Father, through your word, through your spirit, through uh, that which we're participating in this very morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Oklahoma University women's softball team apparently just won their third straight national championship. And in the press conference after their win, they were asked about the pressure. You know, they had one tune in a row, now it's third to the pressure. You know, the reporter is saying, you know, how does it feel to be the team to beat? He actually asked, how do you keep your joy, was the question. How do you keep your joy? I don't know how this interview popped up in my feed. I don't know know if somebody sent it to me. I, I don't really follow softball. So I was kind of half paying attention. But when I heard the first athlete give her answer, I have to say I had to give it a double take. All of a sudden, I'm like, now I'm going to dial in. Her answer to the question, how do you keep your joy, was from the Lord. I'm like, all right, is there a mistake? Am I being pranked? She began to explain that the joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you motivated. She said it can't be mere happiness that comes from circumstances or outcomes. Softball can't give you true joy. Now keep this in mind. This is the interview right after the game. She's still got her uniform on. I don't know I'm, I don't know how many of you have had big wins in your life, but you're usually pretty happy. But she had the presence of mind to kind of go, look at this is not, this isn't it. 
Now, the camera went now to the next young lady, and I'm like, okay, what's she going to say? Is she going to kind of downplay this? No. She reinforced the message of her teammate. We, I, and I went by, and I got this, these direct quotes. She said, we want to win, but if we don't, it's not the end of the world because our lives are in Christ, and that's all that really matters. So I'm like, okay, yeah, okay. Send this to the University of Oklahoma. <laughs> then a third athlete, now it's going down, and continued with the same message. And I'm thinking, is this a softball team, or is this like a mission work? <laughs> now keep in mind, and I don't know how, how this will sound, but these were not weak young people who, as the world likes to say, needed a crutch. You ever hear that? Oh, you religion are for people... Who need a, they were NCAA champions. They were smart. They were athletic. By every worldly observable standard, they were a success story. Finally, one player explained that after winning the previous title, after winning it last year, she realized, having reached really the pinnacle of athletic achievement that she had already set for herself, that it did not give her the fulfillment that one might expect. She said, I had to fix my eyes upon Christ. And then she said, you know, I'm living in the moment, but I have an eternity of joy in Jesus Christ. I have to say, you know, I I went on now to investigate, and the coach is a strong Christian woman, and kudos to her for this environment. I have to say, I found extraordinary encouragement to hear contemporary collegiate athletes speak this way. So this morning, I would like to build upon that idea of joy, the idea of a godly joy versus kind of a worldly happiness. And I think the text we just read is an appropriate text because the purpose of the entire epistle is expressed by John in verse 4, where he writes, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So that's my goal for myself. That's my goal for my own family. That's my goal for you, is that our joy may be full. John's writing, he's saying, we want you to have the fullness of joy. And he's not just saying that. He's going to, throughout the whole epistle, and we'll only get into the foundation of it this morning, explain how we get there. It's not just an empty, be happy. I went into a store recently to buy a pair of sunglasses, you know, and I had a lot on my mind. I mean, you know, I got a funny job, and there's heavy stuff going on all the time. And I remember I needed a pair of sunglasses, and um, I found them, but I was thinking about something else. I was thinking about something that really had me f- focused. And um, the girl at the checkout counter, like, chast- literally chastised me. She goes, maybe you should try smiling. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Let me just tell you something. Um, that's not helping. <clears throat> you don't, I... Don't tell me to smile. You know what you need to do if you see me, if I seem to be in a bad mood? Give me something to smile about. 
matter of fact, I almost renamed the sermon Something to Smile About. So John's not saying, hey, be joyful, grin and bear it. He's going to explain why, in fact, we should be joyful. That's going to be the theme of this entire epistle. But this morning, we're just going to look at the foundation of our joy. But let's first understand something here. As odd as this sounds, we are commanded to be joyful. It is a command. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that in the eyes of God, joy is serious business. Over 350 times in the Bible, we see the words joy or the other related word rejoice. Now, sometimes it's merely describing a state of being, but often it comes in the form of a command. Like Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. Rejoicing or being joyful is every bit of a command as thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Be joyful. You think... It would be easy, right? It's almost like uh, the Sabbath, you know, the command to rest. You'd think that would be easy. I have found it's not easy. I have found that it's not easy to be joyful. And yet, there you have the command. Now, let's just be clear on something here. This word, joy. Because the young lady who said, you know, was comparing joy and happiness and saying they're not the same thing. I understood her point because there's a worldly joy and then there's a godly joy. And the word joy can be translated happy, and it's just, but it's got a different feel than the way the world uses happy. The word really means a feeling of inner happiness. Joy was the experience that the wise men had when they saw the star leading them to Christ. So they're looking, they see the star, they experience joy. Joy was the experience of the women as they were leaving the tomb of Christ. It was an experience of joy. Oftentimes, the word joy is expressed kind of idiomatically, like my heart is dancing. You know, this idea of I'm really happy. Now, I'm saying that, I'm emphasizing that, because I've observed gloomy Eeyore Christians straining to redefine joy in order to accommodate their desire to remain sulky. Now, we may not all express our joy in the same way. Those of you who know me and know my wife know that we express our joy quite differently. Hers involves a lot of dancing. Mine is more like, huh. Some of us are extroverts, some of us are introverts, right? But a lot of us have become masters at hiding the joy. And you go, like, where is the joy? It's got to be there somewhere. Thomas Watson once stated, there are two things which I've always looked upon as difficult. The one is to make the wicked sad, the other is to make the godly joyful. Now, we might mistakenly think that our lack of joy is my own personal problem. 
and casts no aspersion. Why, why is God so concerned that I'm joyful? Why should we be so concerned with each other's joy? But when it gets right down to it, our lack of joy casts an aspersion upon the Lord himself. Richard Baxter put it this way. He said, I desire the dejected Christian to consider that by his heavy and uncomfortable life, he seemeth to the world to accuse God and his service, as if he openly called him a rigorous, hard, unacceptable master, and his work a sad, unpleasant thing. If you see a servant sad, will you not think that he hath a master that displeaseth him? You are born and newborn for God's honor. And will you thus dishonor him before the world? What do you in their eyes but dispraise him by your very countenance and carriage? You see what he's saying here? He's like, you're, you're living this world as if you're upset with God at the lot that he has given in your life. You know, Psalm 84.11 says, The Lord withholds no good thing from those who walk in uprightness. And yet we live in this world sometimes as if well, God is really holding back. And until he starts producing what I want him to produce in my life, I'm going to be sullen and vexed. It's an ungodly disposition and it's a lack of awareness of what God is really doing in our lives through the difficulties that we encounter. And that brings me to this point here, and that is joy in the midst of suffering. What are, what, how do we kind of get those two things and put them in a package together? Is it possible to have joy in the midst of suffering? Did not the apostles go away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ? All right, so I guarantee you that was a negative experience for them to suffer shame for the word of Christ. And yet the Bible says they they walked away dancing, rejoicing. Do you think it was a sullen and vexed, fake rejoicing? Or do you think they looked at each other and they actually deep within their heart rejoiced? that they were worthy to suffer shame for Christ. How often we do in the Bible see suffering, shame, and persecution connected with joy. Those things seem to be, and they're probably in there because the very thing that's going to try to extract the joy from our lives is the difficulty. So the authors of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, is kind of putting those things together for us to be able to work those out in our own minds because there does seem to be a paradox here, right? The natural mind, and I think this is what the young lady was getting at, the natural mind equates suffering with despondency and not joy. And I think that word despondent is a really important word for us to get because despondence is this idea of hopelessness. Talk about sullen and vexed, woe is me, there's no good thing that's going to happen, I'm just going to sit in my dark little cloudy corner and just be bummed out because woe is me. That's despondency. The spiritual man recognizes, recognizes that joy and suffering mutually coexist. They work together in the same package. James calls Christians to count it all joy when we find ourselves in trials and our faith tested. Count it joy 
in the midst of difficulty. Why? Well, he explains, and we're not going to get fully into James, but he explains this, because it is through that trial, through that difficulty, through that suffering, through that pain, that God is producing something in you. It's as if God is this master trainer, and the entire universe is his gym, and we are his student, and he can use everything up to the point of death itself to form us into the image of Christ. And sometimes it's very painful, but even Jesus, we read in Hebrews, was perfected how? Through suffering. And by the way, Jesus was never sinful, right? So he wasn't sinful and then became sinless through suffering, but he came into the fullness of his righteousness. He fulfilled all righteousness, and the means by which God brought him to where he needed to be was through suffering. And why do you think it would be any different for us? So we count it all joy that God is training us. He's refining us and he's producing, as the author of Hebrews says, the peaceable fruit of righteousness through those disciplines that he puts us through. It's an entirely different perspective of life. Despondency. I'm just going to tell you, it's a sin. And some of us need to repent of that sin of despondency. We're not talking here, by the way, about grief. Despondency and grief are two different things. We're not talking about sorrow. You know how I know that grief is not a sin? Do you know how I know that sorrow is not a sin? Because Jesus was a man of sorrow, and he was acquainted with grief. And if Jesus did it, it must be okay. The means by which we measure that which is sinful or sinless has to be at very least measured by Jesus himself. And if he was a man of sorrow and if he was acquainted with grief, we're not talking about living our life with this kind of goofy smile on our face all day long, even when we're going through the most difficult things in this world. That's the difference, though. It's a, it's a despondency that even though we have tears in our eyes, and it's okay to have tears in your eye. You know why? How do you know it's okay to have a tear in your eye, because Jesus wept. But that's different than despondency. That's different than being sullen and vexed. You know, the old covenant character who was sullen and vexed, and it was that sullen vexation in his spirit that caused him to do great evil. That stuff that we can't allow to have permanent residence in our souls. These things are passions, this idea of being despondent or sullen or vexed, that maybe unwittingly seek to indict God himself. You know why? Because God is Jehovah Jireh. You know what that means? Right? It is, he is the God who provides. And when we're grumpy, we're saying, God, you're just not giving me what I really need. Where he might be saying, no, I'm keeping that away from you that you really need to avoid. Stephen Charnock explains it this way. There must be delight on our parts, joy. And this was another um, potential title, I thought, for the sermon. Joy is the tuning of the soul. The tuning of the soul. This, this idea of that our souls need to be tuned. The command to rejoice precedes 
The command to pray, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. We, we, it's a given. Rejoicing is a given. And again, I think it's got to be very palpable. I think it's got to be very existential. I think it's got to be very real. I say, you know, as a, as a pastor of, you know, our church, one of the things that I really enjoy is when I see people in our church actually enjoying each other. Like I just saw a post of three women in our church who I didn't even, I didn't even know they knew each other. But like they're together at some event and they're just having a good time. And I'm like, it's like the way a dad feels, right, when the kids are enjoying each other. Like to just, to just see a congregation of people who enjoy each other's company. You see the word in there? N, joy. There's a joy that we have when we gather together. Joy is numbered among the fruit, right? Peace, joy. And like any other fruit, it has its good days and its bad days, right? But friends, a lack of joy is a symptom of a sinful, selfish, and ungrateful disposition. Ungrateful for the gifts of God, both earthly and heavenly, both immediate and immediate. And we have to grow in joy, similar to the way we grow in love, patience, kindness, self-control. We need to grow in all those things. We need to grow in joy. A lack of joy is something which needs to be repented of. If we recognize, for example, if, we re- if you recognized in yourself that you were not a loving person, if you recognized in yourself that you were not a patient person, you'd be like, i got to work on that. It's obvious. But, but, but gloominess, that's kind of an insidious sin. It's hard to tell. Like I said, you know, like, Again, I don't, I'm not, I don't want everybody walking out of here bouncing around all, hey, look at me, you know, I'm, look how happy I am, you know. I remember um, even like during worship sometimes, you know, there are people during, during the singing portion of worship who are very demonstrative. And I remember thinking years ago that I wish we were all more demonstrative. I kind of like it, you know, I'm not terribly demonstrative myself, but when I see people demonstrative in worship and singing, I kind of like it. I find it encouraging. And um, we had an elder in our church who was just the op years ago, who was just the opposite. He was like as non-demonstrative as you could get. He'd, you know, the song, the words would be up there, we had an overhead, and he'd be like, you know. And he and I were really good friends, and I remember asking him about that. And his explanation was that he was just digest, you know, he was reading, thinking, and digesting it. Like his form of worship just looked different than other people's worship. But it was deep, and it was profound, and it was meaningful nonetheless. Even if he wasn't, you know, dancing around. Like, I like to have a little bit of a movement. He had no movement at all. Engineer. He was an engineer. Just kidding. Well, not, I'm not kidding. He was an engineer. But I know there are some engineers who are very... There's no... I can't, the shovel's gone down. I can't get out. But the thing about, the thing about gloominess is... It's, it's like the difference between like miserliness and drunkenness, right? 
miserliness can be disguised as being frugal. I'm not cheap, I'm just frugal. But drunkenness, if somebody's drunk, there's no good side. There's no way you can hide that, right? It's just the guys are drunk. But that's the way gloominess is. You can disguise it as something else. So at its heart, it is a heart issue. Not what's displayed, but what's going on in your own heart. Now, before we all become even more despondent, because we just realized there's yet another sin that we must contend with in our lives. Wow, I didn't realize I was sinning. Let's realize that God's commands are not designed to be burdensome. If, in fact, joy is a command, God is not giving us that command to burden us. Matter of fact, Psalm 1 teaches us just the opposite, right? It is a delight, blesses the man, right? Who who studies the word, who meditates day and night. It's 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 a blessing, it's a joy to pursue. And we should pursue joy, as Jesus taught, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to work at it. Now, I started with verse 4, because John tells us there, again, why he writes the epistle, that our joy may be full. And if joy is the tuning of the soul, then the fullness of our joy will be the right working of our soul. Right? It's like um, a musical instrument, like a guitar, that needs to be tuned. And if it's not tuned, it just doesn't sound right. Right? We're just not, it's just off. We are, you know, we need, we need, we all need a well-tuned heart. We have a member of our church who's a piano tuner. So he does. He goes and he tunes piano. Right? He, it's kind of like, all right, he, he, I don't know exactly how he does it. I remember asking him years ago. Yeah, but obviously you open it up, you look inside, you hit the keys, you're like, that needs to be tightened, that needs to be loosened. Of course, it needs to be a piano in the first place. Like, so if you're not a believer, this doesn't even apply. You've got to come to Christ in order to even be a piano or even to be a guitar. But once we are, once we've come to faith in Christ, how, do we, how is it tuned? How does our heart get where it needs to be? Well, again... I think the entire epistle will be John answering that, that we might have in this obedience of joyfulness. But Grinnell gives, I think, a good explanation of the problem. He says, the reason why many poor souls have no little heat of joy in their hearts is that they have so little light of gospel knowledge in their mind. The further a soul stands from the light of the truth, the further his needs must be from the heat of comfort. So what is this gospel knowledge of which he writes, and how do we, like those who need warming on a cold camp out, get near and stay near that fire? Right? You got, you're like, you, you know, if you're like me, you don't like camping, you don't like being too hot, you don't like being too cold, you got to find a place close to that fire. How, what is that fire and how do we get near it? How does John start this epistle? 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. You kind of get a feel for how he starts. It's a, it's a little different, his, the way he starts. He starts this kind of the way he starts his gospel. Our, if I could put it this way, our otherworldly joy is based upon something that has really happened in this world. Our otherworldly joy is based upon something that happened in this world. They heard it. They saw it. They touched it. You see what he's, he's kind of getting at? He's like, no, this is not some esoteric system of thought. The word of life, Jesus, we heard him with our own ears. We touched him with our hands. We saw him with our eyes. He was a real person. This is real. This is not something, you know, that's just out there in the ether. There's something real about our, about our faith. Though the Christian faith is deeply spiritual, the Christian faith is also highly rational, and it is tactile. It is touchable. Thomas touched him. The Christian faith is not a mere philosophy. Some, friends, something happened in this world that changed everything, and that's what John starts with. I'm going to tell you, I think there's a great deal of joy robbed from Christians who've abandoned this notion and have opted for non-information from a God who speaks to them mystically and irrationally. I don't know how this much has affected you, people within our own church, but this anti-rationalism, it's getting legs in the 21st century. All you have to do is look at the most popular Christian books that are being sold, not in the Reformed section of the bookstore, right? Just the, the books that have made the New York Times bestseller list. In his very, very popular book, Velvet Elvis Rob Bell promotes this type of mystical approach as an earmark of the growing emergent churches. You know, these churches that, it's a funny movement. You know, they were anti-megachurch, and so they started the emergent church, which is just an emerging megachurch with bad doctrine. He writes this, and these are dangerous words that are infiltrating current Western evangelicalism. He writes, the Christian faith is mysterious to the core. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there's an aspect that is, there is an aspect of mystery. We even read it this morning. But mysterious to the core? It is about things and beings that ultimately can't be put into words. Things and beings? Jesus? Language fails. And if we do definitively put God into words, we have at that very moment made God something God is not. You know, a lot of you, and I hope you have them, you got Bibles. You know what's in those Bibles? Words.
and no doubt for effect, Bell quotes a popular figure who I have to say I enjoy as an actor, but this guy has firmly planted his flag in anti-Christian ideologies. He writes, one of the great theologians of our time, Sean Penn, Put it this way, when everything gets answered, it's fake. The mystery is the truth. I'm telling you, this, I think this type of approach is the source of all sorts of heartache. It's, it'll accomplish just the opposite of joy. Suggesting that the Christian faith is about things and beings that ultimately can't be put into words. Friends, that's just another, another angle at which to view the nefarious question from the serpent Has God indeed said? Because if it can't be put into words, God didn't say anything. It's just another way of saying God can't can't talk to you. It's all a big mystery. Go with your gut. What feels right? And that is the swan song of many a culture and sadly many a church. I mean, this, this applies to what we're talking about here, but just a word of advice in any relationship that you have. Truth, truth loves a definition. It, tell me, tell me what you're thinking. I need to hear it in words. If somebody says, well, the words are too deep, I can't express it, so I'll dance, I'll dance it out. Even that doesn't work because say they dance it out real well and then you go, oh, now I know what you mean. Then you say it in words. Well, maybe they just dance better than they, they talk. But the point here is God has used words to convey to us things that he thinks we need to know. And to say it's all a big mystery is to defy the word of God himself. Friends have a healthy suspicion of those who refused to put things into words. John then continues in verses 2 and 3, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So there's no confusion about where John wants us to focus our hearts as we seek to achieve that which he wants us to achieve, which is the fullness of joy, and that is they saw it, and they're now telling us about it. So our method of access to Jesus is, at least here, the apostles. Well, again, that's... The foundation of the church, right, are the, according to Ephesians 2, the apostles and the prophets. In what respect are they the foundation of the church? The apostles and the prophets, they didn't die for us. They're the foundation of the church because they are the means by which God has conveyed his word to us. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. So we need to have that word, and John is going, look at it, you want the fullness of joy? Here are some things. What we experienced When we experience Jesus, when we saw him, we touched him, we heard him, we're conveying that to you. 
we unite ourselves to them, and more specifically, it's, it's, it's to them because they're part of the church that we're part of, but the, the means by which we're united to them is through their message. And in all of that, we are united to Christ. Now, in verse 5, he's going to begin to deliver the essence of this message, and we can't get to verse 5 because I stopped at 4. But I want to go back to that quote by Grinnell when he said, the reason why many poor souls have so little heat of joy in their hearts is that they have so little light of gospel knowledge in their mind. The further a soul stands from the light of truth, the further his needs must be from the heat of comfort. I would contend that one reason, another reason, So few Christians know the joy of Christ is because their relationship with Christ is based upon some existential, emotional, or mysterious experience. John is kind of going, no, look at it. Let me explain some stuff that really happened. And yet a lot of Christians are kind of like, no, I I had this amazing religious experience and I want it again. And we keep kind of lurching from experience to experience and many of us have not had that religious experience in a long time. What John seems to be emphasizing here is that our joy must be based upon actual events that actually happened in human history. That's the source of our joy. It's not something floating around in the atmosphere. It is something that God did in history. The Father sent His Son in the flesh. His son lived a life pleasing in his father's sight. The only righteous man. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. He did everything that needed to be done in order to be the suitable sacrifice. And it wasn't enough that he was sinless. He had to fulfill all righteousness. It wasn't a matter just of what he didn't do. It's what he did do. It wasn't just his passive obedience. It was his active obedience. And that's imputed to us. When when God sees those who are in Christ, he doesn't just see what Jesus didn't do. He sees what Jesus did do. The full righteousness of Christ is given to you and to me by faith. For he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when the father turned his face away from Christ, it was because Christ had become sin, our sin, imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us. It's a marvelous transfer. He took upon himself the sins of the world. He rose again and a great demonstration of power over sin and death. And then he ascended to his Father's right hand, and the glorious message, attending the accomplished work of Christ, John would then briefly convey in verse 7, where he writes that the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If If only we could know 
what our sin deserved. If, if, only, if only we could get an inkling of what Paul must have experienced when he was caught up into heaven and saw the glory of God and then took a look at himself. Probably more accurately depicted, or at least more fully depicted in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is caught up into the throne room, right? And there's this worship service going on, and there's smoke and pillars and angels flying around, you know. And, and so Isaiah, you know, he sees the holiness of God, right? That's where we see the threefold repetition, right, of the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Interestingly enough, sung by angels who were themselves sinless. So it wasn't just, it doesn't say sinless, sinless, sinless. It doesn't say righteous, righteous, righteous. It doesn't say powerful, powerful, powerful. It is holy, holy, holy. Completely consecrated from everything. This otherliness, if you will, of God himself. And when Isaiah saw that, what was his first reaction? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And he didn't take comfort in the fact that he was surrounded by a bunch of people more evil than himself. You know what he says? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. It's not like us, where we're like, hey, I'm not, hey, I may be bad, but I'm not as bad as that guy. No, Isaiah was like, there's an indictment against the whole human race. And, of course, the beauty of that goes further, right? When one of the angels takes the tongs and goes to the altar and grabs a coal from the altar and touches the lips of Isaiah and his sin is purged. Okay, so let me bring us back to where we're at here. You think Isaiah had joy in that event? Do you think there was any part of him that came back with a ho-hum sullen and vexed, gloomy disposition, having realized the holiness of God and having realized that his sins were washed away. I think that changed his day. I think that the reason joy is so elusive is because we spend very little time with hearts focused on that treasure. We just get caught up in the world. Everything's bumming us out because that's where we're investing our hearts. You know, there's an old story about a grandfather explaining his own inner struggles to his grandson. And he uses the metaphor of two wolves. He goes, I feel like there are two wolves battling within me. You know, a good wolf and a bad wolf fighting. And the grandson says, well, which one wins, grandfather? And the grandfather says, the one I feed. What are you spending your time thinking about? What are you spending your time invested in? Who, is, who has your hearts? If I were to, you know, we talked about tithing last week and how much you can learn about somebody by looking at their checkbook and how much they spend, you know, their money. But what if you were to look at kind of the itinerary of your entire life and what you spend your time thinking about? How much time do you spend thinking about the fact that there is a God in heaven who loves you so much that he sent his son to take your sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west. How often do we avail ourselves of that which God has provided for us to actually treasure that? And these things they call the ordinary means of grace. 
Things like the Word. How many of you open your Bible every day, spend a little time reading it? It was, you know, one of the great joys that I've had in my ministry is being able to go to China to preach and teach the underground church in China, those pastors. They didn't have a good understanding of systematic theology. They, you know, they didn't understand creeds, confessions. They, there's no history of that in China. But you know what they did know? They knew their Bibles. And when I were to get up there and I would quote a verse, there was not one guy in the room who couldn't finish the quotation. And it was something that they found imminently joyful when I would say, this is how this verse works with that verse and that verse. Because they know the verses, they just didn't know how it all worked together. You think they were good students? They were great students. Was there in that room a godly, unquenchable joy? Even when they suffered in labor camps together? Absolutely. You could feel it in the room because they were in the Word. It was kind of all they had. I mean, their worship times had to be done secretly and, you know, getting, getting into all that. But God has given us His Word. Another means of grace is, is, is prayer. Do you pray every day? Do you get up? Do you have it kind of in your mind, in your heart? You know, we have a prayer list in our church. Maybe you're praying for your neighbors. Maybe you're praying for your... Like, this is something that is, that is consuming your mind and heart, your, your prayer life. Worship. The sacraments. And even though it's not technically a means of grace, I will add this, obedience. A disobedience is going to hinder your prayers. Disobedience is going to rob you of joy. You know, you're looking for love in all the wrong places, man. You want joy. You need to dedicate yourself to be the person God has called you to be. This idea that you're going to walk in continual rebellion and yet somehow have the joy of Christ. That's a dangerous game, friends. No, if we invest ourselves in these ordinary means of grace, then we can expect that message of redemption, that message we just heard of in terms of Paul or Isaiah, to be strong and well-fed and a wonderful source of joy in our lives. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I do pray. I pray for myself. I pray for my own family. I pray for our own church. And we all together pray, Father, that we would be so immersed in that treasure of the gospel that no matter what this world might throw at us, that, that there would be that depth of joy, that unfathomable richness that belongs to us that nothing in this world, not even death itself, can take away, realizing this, that even death itself just transports us into the full expression of what it means to be in your glorious presence. And may we be people who recognize that something has happened in this world that has changed eternity forever, and that is that Jesus, our Savior, has conquered death and grants that victory to all who call upon his name. Amen.